The sermon text today is Romans 7, 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You know, hearing, hearing those words, you almost think that Paul is a, a bit of a theological bobblehead, kind of going back and forth, or there's this verbal yo-yo or a spiritual schizophrenia. I mean, it, it is as if two people are in one body. I think about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I, th I think about a civil war in my soul when you hear those words. And yet, didn't you identify with them? I mean, I mean didn't you identify when, when you heard, I do that which I don't want to do? I do the very things I hate? And didn't you identify w w when he said, I don't even understand my own actions? Haven't you ever said... I can't believe I just did that. I, I, I can't believe I just said that. I mean, you can exercise gentleness to a person and then within a moment bring vengeance. You have, you have this love and then quickly it's replaced by anger and bitterness. Well, welcome to the second half of chapter 7. You know, more has been written about this, I think, than any other part of Romans. It, it is... It is a challenge. I think the question that begs to be asked, though, is who is he talking about? I mean, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? And at what stage of life is he talking about? I mean, a lot of different views on this. But, but I want to remind you, it's very important. Because this really, the way we understand this really sets up the context of how we understand the Christian life. And a lot of men and women that I respect deeply hold different, different views uh, on this passage, various views. Some think that Paul is speaking about himself prior to becoming a Christian. And you kind of see that in 7.14 where he says, I'm sold under sin. I'm sold under sin. This idea of, of it can't be after, Christ, after he became a Christian because go back to chapter 6 when we're no longer slaves to sin. 
Some think that, that, no, Paul was early in his Christian faith. He didn't really understand all the truth about the gospel. And, and, and he was, some call a carnal believer. You know, that, that he was going to hit those higher levels of spirituality later. Others hold that, no, this is a mature Paul. This is an apostle Paul. This is an apostle Paul who is giving a present experience of the struggle that he has with eternal sin, internal sin. And that's where I would land. I have a couple friends, Augustine and Luther and Calvin, who would agree with me. I'm not a name dropper all the time, but I feel like that sometimes is the harder position to prove is the one I've just given you. This is a mature Paul. I think he's giving us a testimony of the struggle that he has with indwelling sin, that sin nature that remains, even though saved. And he's giving word to us to draw us to holiness and to give us a realistic picture of the Christian life that we need. This isn't defeatism, and this isn't license to sin. This is trying to give us an accurate picture of what the Christian life is like. Now, let me just give you a few reasons why I think it's a present experience. There are many reasons. I'm only going to give you a few. Um, but to try to support why I don't think it is a past experience or a kind of a, a, a growing away from sin, as some would espouse, but a present experience of Paul. I think first you see that it's autobiographical. 38 times in these 12 verses he says, I, me, myself, or my. So he's speaking about himself. And in verse 14, all the way till the end of this chapter, he speaks in the present tense. Now in chapter 7, in the verses 7 to 13, it's all past tense. So he's kind of referencing that time where he was under the law, being led to see a need for a Savior, but this is a present experience. When people speak in the present tense, it usually refers to a present experience that they're having. Some want to say, well, it makes the speech more vivid. That's true, but, but the continuous nature of the present tense is significant. If you were to hear him, you'd think he's telling us about a present-day experience. But secondly, I would also say the language that Paul uses. You know, listen how Paul references himself. I, I mean, Paul was a, a confident Pharisee. If you look in Philippians 3, he says that, as to the law, I was blameless. You know, he held himself in good stead with the law. But you don't see that here. You see him saying, I don't do that which I want to do. There's nothing good that dwells in me. You hear him speak about, about there's no ability that he has, this brokenness, this raw honesty that Paul gives. You don't hear that coming out of the mouth of a non-Christian, that, that no good dwells within me. Few would say that. I would also say, thirdly, the context. We're in Romans 5 to 8. We're talking about the Christian life and how we live the Christian life by the power of the Spirit. Hit that more next week. But, but it's kind of an intrusion to all of a sudden bring this idea of we're going to go back and talk about a pre-conversion experience. And, and then last, I would say, and this is kind of the final blow of the hammer on the nail, how would these Roman Christians would have understood Paul? I mean, if you're hearing this for the first time, would they have just automatically been drawn to think that he's speaking about a past experience? How did you hear it when she was 
when Abigail was reading the text, were you not saying, yeah, I, yeah, I, I do that. Yeah, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. Did you not identify as it was being read? See, what Paul's doing is he's trying to give us a realistic picture of the Christian faith. He's trying to help us to see that the Christian life is marked by this power of indwelling sin. If I were to sum up the whole sermon, I would simply say, I would say it this way. We're in a battle, but we're going to win. We're in a battle, but we're going to win. There's really two parts to this sermon. We're in a battle. I think he's helping us to see the need or to see the Christian life as it is. He wants us to get a good appreciation for what it will be like to walk out as a follower of Christ in this world. So we want to see the nature of the Christian life. We're in a battle. That's the way he references it. But we're going to win. We're going to win. And we're going to see that <clears throat> Excuse me. in 24 and 25 particularly, when Paul begins to cry out to God, it's kind of the foretaste before we get to 8. So, so we're going to see that we're going to win, and you see it in his cries, both of desperation and delight. But we'll get to that in 24 and 25. Let's look at the nature of the battle. What's it mean to be in a battle, the Christian? Well, I think Paul begins with that it's you and me. We're in this battle with indwelling sin. And you see it really in verses 14 to 20. In 14 to 20, he's beginning to say, this is the battle that we're in. We're hearing Paul kind of articulate to us. Let me just read you a few verses in 14 forward. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul, Paul loves the law. The law is good. We saw that last week. Uh, the, the law cannot save. We know that, but it exposes. It reveals sin. It opens our eyes to it. In a way, as we read, it kind of produces sin, as it were. It kind of exacerbates sin. But Paul's saying the law didn't cause sin, didn't cause death, any more than a do not park sign causes people to park there. It doesn't cause sin, and it doesn't lead to death. Paul's saying sin does that. The law has just exposed it and, and given it life, as it were. The law's good. God's law is a good law. It's sin that leads us to death. And that's why Paul says here, the sin that dwells within me. Notice what he says, it's not I, but it's sin that dwells within me. I don't think Paul's absolving himself of sin. I don't think Paul's taking himself out of the mix. I think he's just contrasting it to the law. It's not the law, it's the sin in me. The issue is it's the indwelling sin. Three times he says that. You saw it in 17 and 20 and 23. Sin is in us. There is a nature that is drawn towards sin. It's a powerful nature. And I think that's what he's getting at in verse 14. Because when you look at verse 14, he says, I'm sold under sin. Now, a lot of people, as I said, they look at this text and they say, well, it can't be a regenerate Paul. It, it can't be a converted Paul because he said back in chapter 6 that we're no longer under the slaves to sin. So how do I understand that? Well, I understand it this way. And John Owen gives great word to this. He's a English theologian in the 17th century, he talked about the difference between the dominion of sin, where it's ruling and mastering over us, and indwelling sin, which is occupying us and tempting us and leading us and challenging us. 
And that there's a difference there. In Romans 6, he crushed the power of sin, the dominion of sin, that is. But indwelling sin remains. Now, I think we see this even in Romans 6. So we'll go back to Romans 6. If you look in 12 and 13, he says these words. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. The implication is it can if you let it. It doesn't have authority over you anymore. But if you give way to it, he says, don't obey its passions. The implication is you can. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So I think even within the context of chapter 6, Paul's saying to the Christian, don't give way to it. There's no license to sin here because he saved you from its power. Don't lay down before it. In fact, you see something similar in Galatians chapter 5. There's no theological debate whether he's talking to Christians here. And he says in in chapter 5, he says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you notice the similarity in language? That we don't do that which we want to do? So, so I, I think what he's showing here is this distinction between the, the, the dominion of sin versus the power of indwelling sin. Remember, he said, consider yourselves dead to sin, but that doesn't mean sin has considered itself dead to you. You know, G.K. Chesterton was a British essayist, uh, and uh, he, he wrote some incredibly important things. And, and he wrote this about the nature of sin. He says, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, and I shared this with you, I think, about seven or eight years ago, he says, there is no denying that he would have great power here, but I'd be the first to rise and assure him that he had, had, he had no authority whatsoever. So, so picture this. You're in a restaurant, this rhinoceros... It does have power, but it can't command you anymore. But it has power over you. It has power tempting and trying you. And it's this power that causes the battle, that causes the conflict. It's the presence of indwelling sin that leads us to the conflict that we face as Christians. And this is what 21 to 23 pick up. If you look at those verses with me, he says this, I find... I find it that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, it, literally uh, right next to you. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the word of the Christian. We love the law because the law is an expression of God. He says, but I see in my body another law waging war, making me captive to sin that dwells in my members. He's saying here, this is the battle. We're in a battle, I said that at the beginning. It's like a cage fight. It's like an octagon. I mean, there's two powers there. There is, I delight in the law of God. That's the law of God. But here there's, there's another law that's come in. It's not the same. It's a principle. And it's the law of sin that makes war against the intention of doing right. Now listen, some laws you've got to pay attention to. If you don't pay attention to the law of gravity, it can be injurious to your, to your body. And the law of sin is a significant law. And it's making war. It's causing conflict. We want to do what's right. And then that attacks. And it causes that dissonance in our soul. You kind of see it when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asked his friends to pray. And they kept falling asleep. And he said, you know, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You kind of see it there. You even see it in something as modern as, as golf. You know, the intentionality versus the actions and the difference. So in golf, you're taught to hold the club a certain way. You're, 
Your feet are to be placed about your shoulder length apart. Your, your back is straight. Your left arm is straight. And, and, and you're supposed to draw the club back, keep your head down. I know how to play golf by intention. But when you come through, you have no idea what the action will be. And you have no idea where the ball will go. It's the most humbling game. But the intentions of our desire for holiness and the actions are at war. I think that's what he's saying here in these first number of verses, that we're in a battle. We're in a battle. The condition of the Christian is this indwelling sin, which is making war with our desire to love God and to walk after him. Again, this isn't license. Oh, well, that's the way it is. I just say, I got a sin. It's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to help us understand the nature of the battle. The battlefield is really within your chest. The battlefield is you. You have indwelling sin, and that causes a struggle. Now, the natural man can't say this. The natural man, the, the man or the woman who has not been converted, they don't speak this way. Uh, they, they think of themselves. If you ask somebody, you know, are people inherently good or bad, they're, they're going to say good. They, they, of course, they'll say there's some really wicked people out there. But basically, by and large, they're, they're pretty good if given the right opportunities. Oh, we know we sin, but generally it can be justified, it can be explained, it can be excused by virtue of some outside influence that has caused it. Never will they look in. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely do the wrong thing sometimes, but you know, I got a horrible boss, or my marriage is in, in bad shape. But, but they can't say there is no good that dwells within. Even C.S. Lewis said that. He said, you ask Hitler if he's a bad man, He'll say, nope. You ask Abraham Lincoln if he's a bad man, and he'll say, yes, assuredly I'm a bad man. Only, only the Christian can speak this way. Only the Christian can have hope in the gospel that allows us to identify the nature of our sin. I, I, again, I, I want to give you a realistic picture here. I, I don't want to um, give a false view of the Christian faith. When you know this about yourself, it gives you certain freedoms. Uh, you know, Tim Keller brings up the sociological freedom that understanding the sin nature and the heart of the Christian gives, that we recognize we're all humans, that the distance between me and Hitler, it just some seeds in my soul didn't germinate like his, that I can look at all people as the same. I don't say, well, those liberals, you know what? God, God's going to give them their due. I don't say that about people. We're all in need of God's redemption. It gives us a psychological freedom that, that I, I know what I'm capable of. And it, gives, it, it humbles me and gives me freedom to not always have to fall short of whatever measurement man has given me that I must achieve. If you're here today, though, and you're not a Christian... Would you not, though, admit with me that there is something wrong with the world? I think most of us would say that here. We would say that there is something wrong with the world, there's something wrong with our country. But let me ask you, would you not say that there's something wrong with you? I mean, do you do everything you want to do in the way that you want to do it? Do you ever do the things you hate? Do you ever act with harshness on the people that you love? 
Who's going to change you? Have you not tried over and over to bring change in your life? What has it brought? Oftentimes just more frustration. I'm simply pointing out that I think Christianity gives the greatest way of understanding human nature. I think Christianity has the right bead on who we are as a people. So the battlefield, the battle that we're in, the battlefield is right here. And this battle that we have, I just want to, it's a normal battle. The conflict that we have. Maybe you turn to pornography and you pull away and you can't believe you did it again and you feel, you feel dirty and you immediately repent to God and you ask for forgiveness. And then, then the thought creeps into your mind, you know what, maybe you're not a Christian. I just want you to know that conflict is normal. That, that you give way to trying to be accepted by people. And you do something that you immediately regret and you turn to God and you ask for forgiveness. That conflict is it's normal. In fact, I would say that if you're here and, and you espouse to Christianity and you never feel a conflict between what you do and what you are, then I would say to you, that you might need to go back and consider whether you're a Christian or not. That's how normal I think the conflict is to be. We fight it. I just want to know it exists. You know, this is a problem with Christian perfectionism. You know, this is a, a stream of theological thought in some charismatic churches and other churches along the way. You see it in some of the writings of Watchman Nee. This Christian perfectionism is not, it's not a like things in order. It's the belief that somehow you're going to climb out of Romans chapter 7 and you're going to graduate to the higher levels of spirituality and this won't be your lot anymore. And I, I just want to tell you, that's bad theology. It's bad theology because for the true Christian who is struggling, it delegitimizes their faith. Or it delegitimizes the power of the cross to break sin. Because you know what? I, keep, I, keep, I feel like I'm stumbling all the time. Christ must not be powerful enough, or I must not be a Christian. Both of those may be false. And, and the, the battle is not just here, and the battle is not just to be expected, but the battle is continual to the end of life. I, I only say this to give a sober assessment so that we will not be ill-equipped even towards the end of our life. Now John Owen, the theologian I referenced, or I always get confused in doing two sermons, but in 17th century English theologian, he said that the only way to get out of Romans 7 is to die. So it's a continual battle that we have. I want to prepare you for that. And you see this in the right, you see this in Paul's writings in Philippians when he says this, and not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. You see Paul flipping, he's in jail towards the end of his life. See the same thing in, in 1 Timothy, uh, definitely one of the later letters, one of the last letters of Paul. He says he's the chief of all sinners, that Paul has not achieved it. He's pressing on. He knows the battle is going to rage until the very end. Now saying this, I don't want you to get the impression we don't have victory. We should expect it. We should have continual victory over sin. It's often uneven, but there should be this incremental move towards Christ over the years. And that's why I always ask you, at the end of every year, do you love God more? I don't ask you every week. It's hard to measure the growing height of a child once a week. But if you measure it every year, you can begin to see that incremental progress. 
And we ought to see that in the life of the individual who has committed their way to Christ. You'll see the change. Carol said to me back a few weeks ago, she says, sometimes when you preach, uh, I have to catch my breath. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but she says, I've known you in the darkest of your life, and you're different. I am different. I still battle. It's a raging battle in my soul. I'll tell you right, right now. Lust, anger. I battle with you. But there's been a huge change. Your life is radically different. And I know for many of you it is, because I've seen it with my own eyes. So yes, we expect victory. But we don't put our gun down. We don't put our sword down. The battle will go on. So that's what we see here. This, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Here's the battlefield, right? And, and it's, it's to be expected, and it's continual. But we're going to win. We're going to win. And that's what I want you to see in 24 and 25. In 24 and 25, Paul gives these two cries out to God in prayer. And, and I think these are the steps leading us into chapter 8 and leading us into the victory that we're going to have in full measure. There's a cry of desperation that you hear. <clears throat> this cry of desperation, look in 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man, that word wretched simply means just, we don't use that word a lot anymore, it means miserable or distressed. He's feeling wretched, he's feeling overwhelmed. I think with himself, wretched man that I am. This isn't a cry of despair. This is a cry of desperation. He needs the grace of God. He's a mature Christian, and he's fighting sin, and he's, he's flagging, he's wearying. That's why Spurgeon, when he preached, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century in London, when he preached on 724, he called it the fainting warrior tired of the sin in our life, ready to be done with it. We're distressed over me sinning in the same way that I did. Have we made progress? Yes. Are we still tripping over these sins? Yes. It's a distress. It's a desperation. He's not looking, you know, you didn't, you notice Paul doesn't ask, what can I do to stop? But he says, who will deliver me? He's looking to a person. He's not looking to a formula. He's also not looking to another spiritual experience. He's not looking to, well, maybe if I go to this conference or that conference, or maybe if I go to this charismatic church, or I'm filled with the Spirit, I have this experience. He doesn't look for those things. He's looking to one who will rescue him from this body of death. He's crying out in desperation, God, deliver me. He's groaning. These are the groanings of a Christian man. You see that later in Romans 8, he's going to say, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, and we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that groaning is this, this desperation, God, I, I really want to be made perfect when I see you. It's the longing heart that's tired with sin. You know, when you read this, when you hear Paul say this, I was refreshed in being impressed by his humility. You know, Paul didn't know these Roman Christians. He was writing a letter. It could have been really a fundraising letter, as it were. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go west in this missionary. He didn't know them. He's the great apostle Paul. And look how he lays himself out for them. This is who I am. 
I do that which I don't want to do. I don't do that which I want to do. Sometimes I don't think I have the power to do it. Can you imagine a church, us, that would have the freedom to be so bold? To say, this is who I am. I'm really struggling with sin. Yeah, this is, this is what I am. You know, we, I, I know we don't intentionally put on kind of our best face of Christianity, but, but, I, but I, it's funny when, oftentimes, when visitors will come, they'll say, wow, this church is very spiritual. And I always, I, I think it's true. Many of you know God deeply, and I love that. And, and I'm glad that they sense the spirit here. But I'd hate for them to think that we're not in Romans 7 with them. I'd hate for them to feel like there's these categories or these hierarchies of Christian faith. I'd hate for that to be the case. I'm impressed with Paul's humility. I hope we can walk in the same humility. I had a former pastor once who said uh, he would jump up and down in excitement if anybody ever called the prayer chain and said, I've got a prayer request. Uh, I am a selfish, lustful pig, and I need people to pray for me. We'll pray for all these other things, and so we should, but the idea of just saying, people, you need to pray for me. You need to pray for me. This is me. One thing I want you to notice in this cry of desperation is he doesn't blame it on Satan. Now, we know that he's... He's a lion, he's prowling, seeking whom he can devour. Jesus said to Peter, he wants to sift you like wheat. It's not a, it doesn't feel like a pleasant experience. So we know he is, but, but Paul starts with himself. Paul doesn't say all these other people's sins have caused such great consternation. His own sin did it. When was the last time you cried out in this kind of prayer for desperation? When was the last time, just in prayer with God, you just said, God, would you help me get over my selfishness? Would you grant me grace to help me through my lustfulness? Would you help me move through my, just my, my need to be right all the time? Or my anger, that we just appeal to God, that we cry out. Say, God, I'm a wretched man. Deliver me from this body of death. It's a worthy prayer. It's an, it would be an important prayer to include in how you pray with God. It really is a, a moment of coming to terms with who we are. But I don't want you to do that without 25. I don't want you to do that without the delight that we have. Notice what he says. He moves right from the sorrow of his own condition right to the delight that he has in God. But thanks be to God. Charles Hodge was a Princeton theologian. He said, it's like an explosion. It's like a spontaneous explosion of joy and gratitude. Thanks be to God. So right from the wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This explosion that we have a deliverer. We have a rescuer. He is rejoicing over God who would bring forth Jesus to deliver us. That's why we sang so much of him this morning. It's Jesus who has saved us from the penalty of sin. That's what we've covered, this idea that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, satisfying God, fulfilling the law in every way, and yet he bears our sins. And not only does he bear our sins, this is important, he bears our sins on a cross, bearing the wrath of God, so God's justice 
that will always be maintained in his universe was met by our sins being punished by Christ. He bore them and the wrath of God. This is the term we use, propitiation. Remember back in chapter 3. It's a fancy term. Here's what it means. That God's righteous anger has now turned to our favor. God's disposed to us. God loves us. God has adopted us. We've been forgiven by God because of Christ, because of this deliverer. This When you consider your wretchedness, and then you consider Christ, and now you've been made holy, you've been made right, you've been reconciled. Don't we want to explode with joy? Thanks be to God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Thank you that you have saved me. But not just saving us from the penalty of sin. He has saved us from the power of sin. He has broken the dominion of sin. Do we still struggle with it? Yes, we do. But, but Christ has dealt a mortal blow to indwelling sin. He's dealt, it is bleeding out until that day when we shall see Christ and then we'll be saved from the presence of sin. And that, that, that's what we see here and why he's rejoicing. It's the presence of sin that he will save us from. Listen, the only future tense verb in the whole section is who will deliver me from this body. And Paul's looking for that day. The day is not today. It's in part today. That's why we are a now and a not yet. Yes, he saved us now, but not yet fully. He will deliver us. And, and that's why you notice at the end of 25, look at what he does. He returns back. At the end of 25, he says this. So then, therefore, I myself shall serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I'll serve the law of sin. So you see that, no, Paul knows he has days ahead, that he's going to continue in this battle. But he's rejoicing that one has come to deliver him. We have been delivered. So if you're a Christian here, you do live in the context of this battle. There is the tension of life with which we live. But we can thank God that he has given one to deliver us. We can thank God now. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Don't drag your sins behind you anymore. They've been forgiven. That we still struggle with sin. There's a battle going on, but we're going to win. There's a battle, but we're going to win. And we're looking forward to that day that we'll be made like him. If you're not a Christian here, I, I hope you hear me clearly. Uh, Christians don't think they're better than the world. Christians don't think that they're less sinners than other people. In fact, I would say that we understand it more. And, and we hate it more because of what we know Christ has done for us. What I want you to hear, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is that we just trust that we have a rescuer. We believe we have one who has delivered us. Who will deliver you? Who will deliver you on that final day? Who will rescue you from yourself? I'd ask you to consider Christ, this great work that he has performed for us. And, and Christian, for you, particularly I, I, I'm mindful of those who have a sensitive conscience and who are easily thrown to the ground over your sin. I, I want to encourage you. The battle is strong, but you're going to win because you're his own. You will win the battle. Let's take a moment and just ask God for grace.
to better understand this, that we'd have right freedom to live in the joy of the gospel and not be falsely convicted or falsely led to lay back because of this.